and they recruit three other Finnish musicians, and they do about 10 gigs around Finland. I'm going to guess they played to, like, a bunch of reindeer or something like that. Hello, 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 and welcome to another very special episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We are going to give our general impressions of the album. We're going to do some deep dives on individual tracks. We are going to complain about the album. We're going to make fun of the album. We're going to make fun of this album. So if you love this band, strap in. We're going to make fun of them. But we're going to do it in a lighthearted way because we are, above all, music appreciators. After we're done giving our snarky comments, we are going to vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. This week, we will be diving into... The May 1983, that is the most specific date I could get for release, album, (laughs) Back to Mystery City by the band Hanoi Rocks. Now, if you are unfamiliar with this album, as we all were going into this week, don't worry. We're going to listen to enough of it that you can get a general feel. And before we throw it around the room and give our tweet-length reviews and general impressions, we're going to give you a little bit of a flavor of what we have been listening to this week. We're going to dive into not the first song on the album, which is Strange Boys Write Weird Intros. Oh, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Strange Boys Play Weird Openings. That is not the the song. I fact-checked that, by the way, and it was true. It's pretty accurate, yes. Across the board. Strange Boys, certainly. And it is a weird opening. We're going to play the song Malibu Beach Nightmare. So that was what we have been listening to this week. By way of introduction, I'm going to throw it around the room for our tweet length reviews. I am going to go first to Adam. Hey, everybody. This is Adam. And are these guys the impetus of that joke that for bands with zero commercial success in America, you say, it's okay. They're huge in Japan. I think they very well might be. All right. There you go. And not just Japan. We'll talk about more about how they were huge in Pan-Asia. Oh, all right. All right. All righty. We're going to go next to Alan. Hey, this is Alan here. I've never been to Hanoi. I have no idea if it actually rocks or not. This album rocks a little, but it also sucks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I have been to Hanoi, and it's chaotic. It's kind of a huge jumble and a mess, so pretty accurate for this album at least. All right, next we are going to throw it over to Phil. Hey, guys. 
Man, so I was not familiar with Hanoi Rocks this week uh, when I dove in. It was definitely fresh material, and it left me thinking, you know, tweet-length review, Hanoi Rocks. What the fuck? So then I look at Wikipedia, and it's like, ex the hoople, and I'm like, what the fuck? And that's where we're at. General confusion. Okay. <laughs> a lot of that this week we're gonna throw it next over to rob hey everyone this is rob and my sweet length review is i feel like i deserve to get a drink thrown in my face by a woman just for listening to this <laughs> i think they were pretty big with the ladies pretty big with the ladies wow different times i guess oh should we mention that we're recording live so we can throw a drink at you and at least get like halfway there you there. go you yeah, can get the, yeah. the experience don't waste the beer we're gonna run out all right <laughs> don't want to run out of beer foreshadowing (laughs) oh nice ouch yeah ouch indeed and this is tom i'm going to be curating this visit to the hanoi rocks museum here and curating uh, my tweet length review is how do you say too much hairspray in finnish the visual aspect of these guys was a huge part of their sound and their founding member leader michael monroe was very adamant that attitude and style was the foundation of this band. He, in many, many occasions, referred to them as the best-looking rock and roll band of the 80s. Wow. He was not just talking about their style. He was also very much like, we were very attractive men, and that was a big part of it. And to be in our band, you had to kind of be a good-looking dude. Michael Monroe, I will say, was quite a good-looking guy. No band I've ever been has said that, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm not familiar with bands that have that disclaimer. Let's start talking about some general impressions. I want to hear... What did you guys think of this album? How was your week? There were some songs that I really liked and I was really surprised by. Uh, You kind of hear their enthusiasm on the record. There were some other songs that I really did not like. And they were very bad songs. This album was kind of a mess. It was kind of a mess. I got a little bit of whiplash, I think, Mm -hmm. because I'd go from feeling... I think it started pretty strong. I was bought in. I was sort of like, hey, where's this band been all my life? And then you get to the next song and you're like, what the fuck is this? Then you get to the next song and you're like, all right, this is decent. So yeah, I definitely felt like I had my head on a swivel a little bit. See, I more felt like it was... I agree with the positive sentiments you guys expressed, which is that it at times it definitely rocked and it got me a little excited. There were little passages that really worked for me. But I don't think any one song is something I could really call a success. They make some really weird production decisions. I think the lead singer sings off-key frequently. They shoot themselves in the foot often. Like they've got there are some 80s cliché rock aspects yep. that I totally fall for. I love certain aspects of the sound, of the song structure, the way the drums hit and stuff. But yeah, there was I feel like there was always they always found a way to sabotage each track with something. So yeah, I, I dig what you're saying. I kind of had the impression from listening to this album that a lot of bands heard this sound and saw the look and were like, oh, we can do that better. And then became massively popular doing it better, like a Def Leppard or somebody like yeah, that. They were right. Yeah, they were right. <laughs> yes, yeah. They were. A lot of editing is needed and a lot of refinement of different parts. Some of the songs just felt like there were four things crammed together in a bag that had room for three things and it just overflowed. Mot- Motley Crue was like, This is we can do this better. We're gonna change the formula in one key way, which is we're gonna have one super ugly guy in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Only one? 
Yeah, Mick Mars. Well, yeah, super ugly. Yes. Oh, poor. He's a weird looking guy. He's a weird. He looks like an alien. He's aptly named. (laughs) But (laughs) overall, I do think that this album was a fun time. It's party music. It's certainly party music. Sure. It is do a bunch of coke, have a bunch of sex, live life like, you know, 1987 is never going to happen, basically. And yeah, they achieve that. It's a party. The other way I thought it was a mess, and I'm sure we'll get into it with the individual song titles, but it really felt like magnetic poetry slam way of naming songs. None of these song titles really make any sense to me. Maybe that's the non-English thing. I was going to say, so the, the English as a second language thing cropped up a couple times with the lyrics and the delivery and yeah, it just, it just felt odd, but I didn't want to go hard against them. Like, Oh, you guys can't speak English that well. Therefore you suck. It's like, no, that's not it. But at the same time, I don't know that I would pick a language that was not my primary language and then try to go sell albums there. The track that got me thinking that there was a possible language barrier, which I know we'll talk about is the song lick summer love. (laughs) Yeah. What's that translated from exactly? I don't know if you guys had a chance to dig in too much into the history, but I much better appreciated the drummer Razzle's old band called the Fuck Pigs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Was he the guy that connected with Ex Mata Hoople? I don't don't know who connected. I think Tom will explain that to us. Listen, there are a lot of people who have been in and out of Hanoi Rocks in the various incarnations. We will definitely get into that. The whole thing to me was a little bit jumbled and it was a little bit unfocused. But again, I did kind of have a good time with some of them. It was not music for everybody and it's not music for me for most of it. But there were passages that I found to be relatively compelling. I did think it was fun in a sense. You know, I kind of came on strong in the intro and we've already stated some of the problems with it. But I did like that it didn't take itself super seriously like I think they they knew what they were and were not trying to be anything different and I kind of respect that I think the there were parts of it that were, were kind of funny in a way but yeah not anything close to a perfect album I do think that they thought that they were the cutting edge they definitely had a very high opinion of themselves they were the shit and they were the best thing that had ever happened to music and they were going around and again They were fun. They were attractive dudes. They were in a rock and roll band. I'm sure they're just having sex and doing drugs and having a grand old time. They were kind of the darlings of... Of Finland? Well, we'll talk about this. They were kind of the darlings of the music scene in a way that like other bands thought that they were super cool, even if they didn't have a lot of commercial success, because they did not have a lot of commercial success. Like the Velvet Underground. Kind of like the Velvet (laughs) Underground, but... I don't know if it's less drugs or more drugs, but the drug mix was off in this band. In bigger hair, for sure. Certainly bigger hair, yes. I watched a couple of their music videos, and I didn't see anything tongue-in-cheek about them. Maybe the songs and the lyrics were maybe a, a little not, they didn't take themselves too seriously, but those videos, man, they were going hard. Like They really were trying to sell their wares, essentially, So it, it and which was striking as well, because the lead singer at times is beautiful as a woman. You know what I mean? Like, very, 
like very demure features. I mean, if I hadn't known, I would have thought that maybe it was a female fronted band in one or one or two of the videos from and the And then you'd 80s. listen to the lyrics. And then I listened to the <laughs> lyrics and I was, yes. I came across a story where I think they were playing a show in like Israel maybe. And apparently they got pelted by shit walking down the street because people thought they were like scantily clad women oh my God. walking down the street. Right, so right. they definitely had that look about them for sure. And like, it was kind of funny. They... It did seem like they walked their talk, though. They sort of, it seems like, kind of invented sleaze rock or at least, like, pioneered it. And I also came across another story where apparently the singer would pick up chicks at a bar, and when he finally convinced her to come come back to her place, he would invite the rest of the band just so they could raid her fridge because they were fucking starving and broke. <laughs> the sleaze rock thing, though, we here on this podcast talked about the New York Dolls which what predate this album by 10 years, 10 years, oh, at least wow. 10 years, yeah. as the progenitors of sleaze rock. And then subsequently we talked about guns and roses perfecting sleaze rock. So I'm really hoping, cause I agree. I don't have a totally negative opinion of the band right now. It's not really for me. And we can talk about why later, but I want Tom to explain how this fits into the sleaze rock canon. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> All the nuances of that genre. We can get to that, but first we are going to do, Hanoi Rocks by the numbers. First number I want to throw out there is 21, which is the total number of musicians that have been in Hanoi Rocks at one point or another. Mm. They had a lineup that revolved and then solidified, and then they broke up, and then they had a reunion, and they had a bunch more people coming in there. There was a lot of people in there. It's a Gantt chart band. You definitely need the Gantt chart to understand what's going on with the band. The second number is 16. And that is the age that bassist Sammy Jaffa was when he was convinced to move to Stockholm from Finland to join Hanoi Rocks. The number I'm going to throw out next is 15. And that is the number of days that Vince Neil served in prison for killing the drummer of Hanoi Rocks in 1984 in a drunk driving accident, which also seriously injured two other drivers, including giving at least one of them brain damage. Holy crap. When I came across that story, the first thing I thought in my head was, I didn't know Vince Neil did like 20 years in prison. Like I didn't realize that was part of his like backstory. So then I go on his Wikipedia and I see that he served, it was like 25 days and then he got 10 days time served or something. And then... Just for good measure. So, you know, once I was down the Vince Neil wormhole, I start going on the uh, Wikipedia. He is a real fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on, Alan. No, hold on. He he did dedicate Motley Crue's Theater of Pain to Razzle. Oh, of course. Doesn't yes. that make oh, up for it? Wow. I stand corrected. <laughs> Probably not from a royalty standpoint, but maybe just in the liner notes, he got a little mention. Yeah. He's got paragraphs in his legal issues, quote unquote, section of Wikipedia. Fucking assaulting sex workers at a bunny ranch, Jeez. beating the shit out of sound guys until they were unconscious, batterly. I mean, this guy fucking sucks. Once you kill a guy and you do essentially a fortnight in prison, oh my at that point, you're like, well, what the fuck else I'm can invincible. you do to me? Do you guys remember the movie Airheads? Yeah. With Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, uh, Adam Sandler. I never caught the reference, but at one point in that movie, they're... Basically, they've blown up now because everybody's listening to him on the radio and a record executive comes in and they're talking to him and they're like, well, how are we going to get us out of prison? And he says, dude, Vince Neil killed a guy and he only did 30 days. And that's like the, oh my God, I can't believe how little that is. Double the amount of time that he actually did. He only served 15 days in jail. And I think it's because he paid lots 
to get out, right? He paid he paid a few million dollars in a settlement or yeah, something. That was part but of a it. settlement. You can't just be like, hey, how about I just give money to your brother and then you don't fucking. Uh, what's weird is that Motley Crue wasn't even that big. If you knowing the Motley Crue lore, I think people listeners, astute listeners of this podcast, know that I love Motley Crue and I listened to them from an early age. So that was the only way I knew Hanley Rocks was from that story. I didn't want to spoil it last week, but it's funny to me because they were definitely on their way up. They had like three more albums until they reached their peak. So it's not even like he was a huge rock star at the time. I mean, he had he apparently had a nice ass fucking sports car though that. That he crashed, so he's feeding the monkey somehow. He's a rich white guy, and they have different justice systems. All right, we're going to move on to our By the Numbers, which is six, which is the highest chart ranking for this album on the Finnish charts. This album didn't even go number even one in, fin- in Finland. Even in Finland. Not even number one in Finland. Wow. Come That's on. Proud. I don't even know if I can think of another Finnish act yeah. to like compare to. It's just like a... Guy from Lapland playing some gigantic stringed instrument, <laughs> yodeling or something like that, went number one that year. Is Tamu Solani from Finland? The hockey player? I think he is, yeah. Okay. I think that might be the following Maybe he cut a solo album yeah. and that was... <laughs> Probably a big Hanoi Rocks fan. And then the last number we're going to throw is number one, which is the number of times that they caused a literal riot during a performance, which was in Mumbai. Apparently, when they played in Mumbai on this like Asian tour, they had a gigantic reception and they said that they had to have police officers lining the front of the stage with gigantic batons to beat people back from rushing the stage. And there was a gigantic riot outside that made the newspaper was a huge deal. Hello, fellow complainers. We'll get back to the show momentarily, but I just wanted to ask you, yes, you, to leave us a review or a rating. It's a fast and easy way to show your support, to keep our morale up week after week as we read one terrible 1970s music memoir after another. No, but seriously, it's important. So if you've been enjoying the show and want us to keep diving deeper into these albums and the stories behind them, take a moment right now, rate our show. Thank you. Then they went and played in New Delhi after that. They played in, actually, they played in Vietnam on that tour. So it was like they went from India to Hong Kong to Japan to Vietnam and were huge. And they were still making no money. And they were basically going back to being super poor in London. You know, not super poor, but they weren't like crazy rock stars. I'm sure they were like investing their earnings, though, from, you know, into diversified portfolios. Yes. Exactly. It's a lot of bonds, you know, safety for the long run. There's some alternate universe where I, I just, you know, I don't know anything about the 80s. I was something's happening. I don't I don't understand anything you're saying. Tom. Yeah, I kind of don't get it either. It's weird. But let's jump into the background. We're going to talk about Hanoi Rocks founded in 1979 in Helsinki, Finland by lead singer slash saxophone player slash harmonica player Michael Monroe, whose real name is Maddie Fagelhorm. Whoa. Which a good call to change that one. Sorry for any Fagelhorns who are listening to this podcast in Finland. We love you. And also guitarist Andy McCoy, whose real name is Antti Hulko. I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to make fun of you. I'm Finland. sure you got to get to it, but the names thing is hilarious to me. Oh, it's, it's great. It's great. Hey, guys, I'm going to call myself Andy McCoy. It's a slight riff on my much less Western name. Okay, I'm going to call myself Nasty Suicide. <laughs> 
Oh, and the greatest thing is listening to Michael Monroe in interviews talk about it. And me and Nasty went and did this. Like, that's just a normal fucking name that you're just going to throw out there. And hold on. So just so the listeners know, he's the rhythm guitar player. He's nasty suicide. <laughs> that makes it so much funnier to me. He's the Izzy Stradlin of fucking Illinois Rocks. Oh, and I don't know if you saw, Adam, you said you saw some of the music videos. These guys wore their instruments so low. We're talking like knocking your knees low for the guitar. They were all about the style and not about the execution. It's bad for your wrist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the consideration here? So they decided they wanted to create a band. They were like 16, 17 years old. They left Helsinki and they go to the mecca of rock and roll of Stockholm. (laughs) And they wanted to create a super punk band, which I'm pretty sure they originally were called Nymphomaniac. All style. Basically, they said that they were trying to be a more extravagantly dressed version of the New York Dolls. Ah, that was their is. thing. There that was is. what was missing from the New York Dolls. Right. Yes, was, yes. Was the, the dresses were not extravagant. Listen, four-inch heels are bullshit. We need six-inch heels at least, and your hair must be in the most elaborate fonts to puffed up style ever you obviously looked at a lot more photographs of these guys than i did yeah yeah i mean they're they're a visual band and even like a pre-mtv visual band because they didn't really take advantage of the mtv music video format in a way that i could appreciate in my week of research again only had a week of research so any hanoi rock stands out there feel free to write in and tell us that we're wrong oh they're going to they have a cult following like there's legions of people that think they are the shit so we're definitely gonna get get the hate this isn't in even in spotify's most top four played records of theirs no it is not i kind of don't understand why this album's on the list but either way he says they move to stockholm they're in this total chaotic frenetic party scene they're having a crazy thrash punk band super stylish kind of all falls apart pretty quickly and they decide to return to helsinki and they want to regroup but andy mccoy and michael monroe they say hey we want to create another band and he's like, I'm totally in. However, I also joined this other Finnish punk band. So, you know, you make the band happen. And then I will come and join later, basically. And Michael Monroe meets Nasty Suicide. <laughs> real name, Jan Marcus Stenfers. <laughs> I see how you get Nasty Suicide out of that. Yep, Definitely yep. sounds like a porn star. Anyway, the two of them, Michael Monroe and Nasty Suicide, which I'm going to have to keep saying again and again, they form the nugget of this new band. And they recruit three other Finnish musicians, and they do about 10 gigs around Finland. I'm going to guess they played to like a bunch of reindeer or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it went very well. On that like mini tour, they get their manager. This guy, Seppo Vestrinin, was kind of a big deal in the Finnish music scene. He had brought big Western bands to Finland. And Andy McCoy sees them at their last show and is like, oh shit, you guys are actually awesome. And so he quits his old band. He's like, hey, remember how we had this deal that I'm like, join your band? So they throw one of the dudes out. Andy McCoy joins and they're like, all right, here's the plan. Master plan. We're all going to move to Stockholm again. We're going to make it big in Stockholm. They got a lead guitar player. They got a rhythm guitar player. They have a singer, sax player, harmonica player. They need a rhythm section. And they were supposed to have... This guy from Stockholm joined the band, but to hear Michael Monroe tell it, they lost his phone number. And so then they were just like, ah, fuck. All right, we're just going to call up this guy, Sammy Jaffa, that we know in uh, Finland, 
and have him come over and join the band. So they convince him. He's 16 years old. They convince him Jeez. to come and join the band. They're like, come on, come join the band. They get a new Swedish drummer. His name is Jip Casino, who has joined Shut the up. band. <laughs> yeah. Jip Casino. Apologies to any Roma listeners. <laughs> yes. I'm just reading the names here. His name is Jip Casino. So now they have their band. And they again, they convince Sammy Yaffa to come over. Like, come on over to Stockholm. We're going to execute on our master plan. Step one is we're going to be homeless in Stockholm in the winter. <laughs> that literally was the plan. Sammy Yaffa at 16 years old showed up and thought that they were like a real band and they had an apartment and everything like that. And he showed up and they're like, no, we're actually literally homeless. We have no where <laughs> oh to live. God. Sometimes I feel like a strategic homelessness. I could, I could use that for like a month, you know, just be free of all my troubles. Uh, yeah, but not like, you know, five degrees south of the Arctic Circle in fucking winter time. The only guy who was not homeless at the time was Andy McCoy, who apparently had a rich girlfriend that he was living with. And the entire time I was reading this, I was like, that is a total John move. That's John right there. <laughs> He's like, no, oh, there's not enough room for you guys in my rich girlfriend's big apartment. So you, how about you guys be homeless? And then, you know, we'll just meet up for band practice. I'll see you at band like practice, yeah. yeah. He rolls in warm, well-fed. What do you mean you didn't practice? <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring you some muffins and napkins. Our instruments keep getting out of tune. Apparently, according to Michael Monroe, this was the coldest winter in Sweden in decades. And so they're literally living on the streets in brutal conditions. And he basically says that, like, that's the happiest he's ever been in his entire life, which is kind of weird. He said, I had nothing to lose and everything was just possibility in front of me. And so I had this big thing to strive for. And it really gave us this grit and this attitude that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Like we really had to survive by our wits. It's wow. like well, literally. Yeah. If your first thing that your wits tells you is let's move to fucking Stockholm with no place to live in the wintertime, you're probably not that smart of a dude. <laughs> Guys, let's all move to Juno right now. Yeah. Let's do it. Turn the computers off. <laughs> let's go. Unfortunately Juno right now is probably ninety eight degrees. Yeah, Thank you, global warming. <laughs> so Anyway, they're like legitimately homeless for kind of a while, for many months. But then February of 1980 comes. This is 1979, like late 1979, they moved to Stockholm. February of 1980 rolls up, and they end up producing one single, and then they go on tour. Which just the confidence to be able wow. to be like, I have one single. Let's just go on tour for like a hundred days. I mean, going on tour is better than sleeping outside. <laughs> <laughs> There's heat on the bus. Yeah, how'd you go from like sleeping outside to like cutting a single? Oh, they got they convinced the guy basically to produce a single for him. It was super low budget. Surprise, surprise. But at that point, the guy's not paying their way. He's just like, yeah, if you want to come in and we'll throw some studio time, sandwich. I'll take forty percent of the proceeds from the single. And they go on tour for like 100 plus days, but they're not really getting a following from touring. Apparently, when they were first touring, people were really turned off by them. They thought that they were too crazy, too loud, too frenetic. And at this point, they're in the full getup and their hair and yeah, flamboyant. Like ripped jeans and yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. It sounds like a band I was once in. Oh, uh, you're talking about how it sounds like The Chop? The Chop had jobs, Phil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> had we did nice have jobs. Right, yeah. we did have jobs. Maybe that's why we never made it. <laughs> you guys can afford, <laughs> can afford your own hairspray. So yeah, they go on tour, but again, when you're homeless, it's like, who the fuck cares? <laughs> you know, wherever you are, that you're on tour. <laughs> 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 It's a whole lot of people on tour in you know, <laughs> Philly and New York right now. It's amazing. So they're still plugging away. They're still convinced that they are going to make it big. 
And they end up, in February of 1981, releasing a full-length album. It's called Bangkok Shocks, Saigon Shakes, Hanoi Rocks. It's a long-ass album title. Listen, this is a pretty good name for Finnish guys. I gotta give it to them. (laughs) It's a pretty good name. Basically, they're touring all over the place, probably playing on the tundra or whatever the fuck you do in that area of the world. And eventually, do you they have decide. Beef with Finland, <laughs> sweet. I don't have beef with Finland. If I had anything, it'd be reindeer meat with Finland. I lost a suitcase there once. Now, I've never been to Finland. I'd love to go, but hopefully, I won't be assaulted when I get off the plane. <laughs> My memory was that Helsinki was so small you could walk through the entire city in like ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's not a very big place. Is no, it? it's really not. Not a rock and roll mecca. That's why even they were like, "We got to go to Stockholm." Get out Stockholm's here, right? where it's at. But eventually they outgrow Stockholm and they say, we have to go to London. So, again, this is with drummer Jip Casino as their drummer. It's 1982, like mid-1982. They've been playing in London, living in London, I believe, in an actual structure. Now, we're in a domicile at this point. And Michael Monroe was in the bathroom at a show. And a man named Nicholas Charles Dingley approaches him. And basically says, I love your band. Your drummer sucks. You should kick him out and put me in the band. Not Jip. Not <laughs> Jip Casino, of course. <laughs> and Michael Monroe is like, oh, you fucking asshole. Can I have your number? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. First question. Do you have a name that can rival Jip Casino? <laughs> yeah. Because that's mandatory. Because you're not going to be Nick Dingley. <laughs> it's not going to be the guy. In it's like, can you share the stage with Nasty Suicide? Right. <laughs> you got to step it up, man. So Nick Dingley, a.k.a. Razzle. Apparently, Ooh. comes a couple more times and is just like, hey, your drummer sucks. And to hear Michael Monroe tell it, they were having some real problems with Jip Casino and that he was doing drugs and was kind of depressed. And so they kicked him out of the band. What I read on Wikipedia was that he was kicked out for a porn addiction. <laughs> a porn addiction. Oh, yeah, because this band is not sexualized at all. Right. Yeah. Wait, wasn't Razzle the name of the porn that he was? That he, I'm, I think I read that Ormag he was addicted to was called Razzle. Jeez. He was addicted to a porno magazine called Razzle. Called Razzle. I, apparently, I could have also made that up. <laughs> <laughs> we have any hardcore fans in London and/or Helsinki, and you want to send us a vintage copy of Razzle? We'll totally take that. Just it just seems like it would really take a lot of effort to be addicted to a porno magazine. <laughs> You're like showing up at eight o'clock in the morning when the newsstand opens up for <laughs> the weekly edition of Razzle. Hold on, not to lose your job or your girlfriend too, but to have a Band of hooligans <laughs> kick you out. A band yeah. of like recently homeless hooligans <laughs> says no. You can't. You can't be in the band. Razzle. It's a British softcore pornography. Magazine. Softcore pornography. Okay, he's addicted to skin. Well, this is like the eighties, so you These know. sound like some made up charges to try to get this guy out of the. Band. He liked the articles, I guess. He liked the. Alan, I hope you're in incognito mode, or you're going through our. Sponsor this week, Express VPN. No, I'm joking. <laughs> For nice all song. your weird early 1980s <laughs> pornography needs, Express VPN. Trust me, looking up Razzle Porn Magazine is the least damaging thing on this computer right now. <laughs> That's one of those things they talk about, like, oh, your internet search history. Imagine if anybody saw that. I think that people would just be sad. They'd be like, oh, you're like really bored. And you have a weird obsession with looking up things you could never buy. (laughs) My internet search history is just guitar pedals and 500 series gear. Fills into some weird porn. It's all guitar pedal porn. (laughs) So many knobs. 
<laughs> so they kick Jip Casino out of the band. Back to Helsinki with you. Although, actually, I'm sorry. I think Jip Casino is actually from Stockholm. So back to Stockholm. I'm sorry for confusing Sweden and, and <laughs> oh, Finland wait, now here. Now it all makes sense. Yes. Thank you. And they have already released two albums. They're about to release their third, which Razzle doesn't play on, but is apparently credited as the drummer, even though Jip Casino played on it. Total dick move, guys. Oh, I didn't read that he was credited, but he is on the cover, which is confusing. Yeah. He's in the liner notes, too? He's in, apparently, he's credited as the drummer on the album, yes. So, we now so have Hanoi Rocks this solidified. This is the, the classic Hanoi Rocks lineup, all right? So, they've had some success in, like, Lapland or something like that. They were having a big breakthrough in Japan, because apparently Japan in the 80s was weird as fuck, and, you know, whatever. This was selling. So, they go to tour Asia... In early 1983, they do the Bombay, Hong Kong, Japan, Vietnam tour. Pretty baller, I got to say, for a band that has had no success so far. It's essentially like one of our bands being like, we're going to book like a pan-South Asia tour. Let's fucking do it. Yeah, It's not like you can drive between those places. Oh, no. Yeah. You're right. But again, they were getting huge receptions. Michael Monroe insists that they were the first rock band to ever play New Delhi. And that people were just going crazy. They're like, I've never seen anything like this before. You know, it is an interesting strategy because I've heard from some people who grew up in Asia. They'll mention some weird European band. I feel like Michael Likes to Rock always comes up. And I'm like, how the hell do you know this band that no one knows? Like, they were talking about how big they were in China or whatever. It's because they went to China. So few people go on tour in these countries. It does make a big impact. Yeah. Be the big fish in the small pond. Yeah. They just don't get a lot of Western acts for the reasons we're describing. Right. Yeah. And when you have your potential audiences a billion versus, you know, 200 million in the U.S. Yeah, that Europe. circle that they toured in Asia, it's like a third of the people in, in the, the world. world. Right. Yeah, that's that wild. Right there. Yeah. Notice, noticeably, uh, they skipped over Bangladesh, though. Not going for Bangladesh, <laughs> which I think is like the most densely populated country in the world. No right? DACA stop. So, all right. They get done their tour. They return to London. They hit the studio. And in May 1983, they release... Back to Mystery City. That brings us up to this album. Now, let's dive in and actually start talking about some of the songs on this album. Oh, yeah. We're going to revisit the second track on the album, Malibu Beach Nightmare. All right, that was Malibu Beach Nightmare. Let's hear everybody's impressions. What do you got for me, Rob? Look, it started with so much promise. I really did like the first 30 seconds. I think that the guy's range, the singer, is not what he thinks it is. I would say that's accurate, yes. And in general, I think the track is one of the better ones probably, but I'm sure we're going to call out the weird sax piano breakdown from the 1950s that feels completely out of place in time it was a complete code switch you're all of a sudden you're into like a 
like wedding music shit. I was, it was ridiculous. It's yakety sax territory or yakety yak, maybe. Right, right. And continuing my battle and hatred of the saxophone in this context, I was thinking about that. I love saxophone like when Edgar Winter plays. <laughs> you don't say. What don't you love about Edgar Winter? It, it, seriously, next week, next next time I'm on, we're on together, can you tell me one thing you don't like about Edgar Winter? Can you work on that? I can tell you right now, nothing. Uh, I think the, the rhinestones. And the <laughs> uh, yeah, right, yeah, maybe That's the, the like glue on rhinestones. Oh, yeah. I thought, so to Rob's point, super promising, right? Came in rocking hard. Yes, this is yeah. right up my alley. But then I was thinking more like these guys didn't hide that they're Finnish. And to have this song about the Malibu Beach girl felt like me singing about Helsinki, yeah. you know, like my old my old stomping grounds in Helsinki. No, you're you're not. It just felt weird. My note is: tell me you've never been to Malibu without saying I've never been to Malibu. Right? It's, yeah. <laughs> yes. And also exactly. at this point, they had not toured the U.S., so I don't <laughs> think that they had ever actually been to Malibu. I think it was just like, "Hey, America, USA, Coca Cola number one." <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the guys had been in Mata Hoopa, right? Which guy? Talking about the guy? Was in I don't know. No, no. Phil's reading comprehension is low. That was the producer <laughs> of the record. <laughs> The producer's like, you know where they got the hot chicks? Malibu Beach. And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah Down right. in Malibu Beach. <laughs> well, there's a spoken part at the end that I said it felt like it was an SNL actor doing an impression of an American doing an impression of a Finnish guy who's doing an impression of an American guy. The very end is so awkward. Yeah, I can't rip them for their lack of English comprehension. Yeah, right. sure, what was sure. the, the quote from their Wikipedia page? where they said the Yowl English language lyrics must impress Finns more than native speakers like myself because eventually it just becomes kind of a weird word salad of like, hey, sex and rock and roll and fun times. <laughs> That's from the Village Voice review, the Robert Christgau oh, review. Yes. Yeah. But in general, I did think that this had some good elements to it. It's still a bit of a mess, as the entire album is a bit of a mess. Yeah. But it had some elements to it. It's one of the better songs, I thought. I did like the way it started also, but as soon as the lyrics come in, like I, I sort of get lost by the not just like the vocals and the singing, but like it, it's it, it and I'm talking about this song in particular, not, you know, the record of the band in general. I was trying to find uh, the cultural relevance of skinhead girl. So he mentions a skinhead girl in the lyrics, and I wasn't sure if that meant like a punk rock girl, because he was trying to come off that like he wants to find a punk girl or something. But I didn't think. But he says, I'll find a skinhead girl, that Brixton Pearl, which is a city in England. England. So he's like, I'm going to move to Malibu and I'm going to find a girl. But my only frame of reference for English speaking (laughs) girls is the girls in Brixton that I met (laughs) that may or may not be skinheads. These lyrics are just ridiculously trite i want to stay in the sun gotta have my fun when the work is done down the malibu beach and when the winter is gone i won't stay for long just turn the radio on down the malibu beach it is definitely like google translate words <laughs> <But> is <laughs> right, winter right. in malibu still beautiful i don't know i've never been to malibu but i assume yeah well it's basically la it's right north of la no one calls it the malibu beach though i'm sure about that <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> Absolutely. Alan, what'd you think of this? This song actually gave me some hope for the album. Like this, I think it started off on a pretty, although I know there's a song before this that was more of an intro, but I thought it started off really good. It, it, it definitely rocks. Like it lives up to his name. The sax though is weak. It's, I mean, the playing is fine, but it, it just sounded like warmed over like Clarence Clemens or something. 
I didn't dig it at Oof. all. The drum beat is, you know, the dun 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 dun, dun, dun which they use on the very next song. By the way, same exact drum. The beat. Saturday night drum beat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I had high hopes. This was, I thought this was like a, a, a promising start to the album. The piano thing that they do also piqued my ears that I was like, okay, maybe this will be cool. There's a run up on the piano that will drop here. That was odd, but, but cool. I, th- I thought it was a nice kind of like flavor thing that they dropped in. So in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, all right, m- maybe I can get down with this. Alrighty, we are going to jump on to the next song on our focus list, which is Tooting Beck Wreck. So this song like actually made me excited for the record. The first time I listened to this, the song came in and I heard the guy's pitchy voice and there's something about the way the song was written. It kind of was somewhere between like early rock and roll and sort of like a post Beatles thing. And at the very end, you hear the guys are like, oh man, let's see how that sounds. You know, you hear they're all excited right in the room. And I was like, oh, this is like some kind of DIY thing from the early 80s. This must be like a early home recording thing. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Phil, because this song is not actually fucking tuning back wreck because goddamn Spotify has the wrong song on the fucking album on Spotify. This is Don't Never Leave Me from their first album. I had a note that why isn't this song called Don't You Ever Leave Me? Because that's the chorus. Why is it called tooting, tooting, as in tooting, Beck Wreck? Yes, so this is Don't Never Leave Me from their Bangkok Shock, Saigon Shakes, Hanoi Rocks album. But it's also Don't You Ever Leave Me from their album Two Steps from the Move, which came out in March of 84. This cut is literally on all their albums on Spotify. (laughs) Who the fuck is in charge of the Spotify account? For Hanoi Rocks. What the hell is wrong with you? I'm kind of surprised we haven't run across this before because this is a new... I've never personally seen this happen on Spotify before, but there must be other mistakes like this. But it does make one wonder for long defunct bands, who is in charge of this stuff? Must be the record label, right? But what if the record label's gone? Right, and what, the surviving guitarist going to email help at Spotify.com? Like, (laughs) support? It's actually a good point. We could get this changed. This might be something we have the power to do. Maybe maybe there's some kind of, like, intra-bands rights hustle, though, right? Maybe, like, somebody in the band is taking a song and blasting it across all the records because the thing that actually scrapes to pay out certain uh you know it's like it's listening maybe there's like a listening crawl in the interest of giving them a fair shake in our final vote 
We're going to play the actual song, the actual Tooting Back Wait, can I have more intra-band conspiracy theory time? (laughs) (laughs) So we're not going to talk about Don't You Ever Leave Me? No, we're going to talk about Tooting Back Rec. We're going to listen to the actual song. For all the listeners out there, we listened to the wrong song this week. We are going to listen to the real song right now. And then we're going to give our live reactions to what we think about because this song. it was hidden under an otherly named Spotify track. We didn't actually make this. Wait, this screw is up. A, this is a bait and switch. You're going to make me listen to more of this. Well, I'm going to make you listen to more of this. <laughs> and to be fair, it took me kind of a long time to figure this out. So this is going to be the first for everybody here. Listen to the actual Tooting Beck Rex song, and then you can compare it to "Don't You Ever Leave Me Down," where he sounds pitchy as shit. Which actually is a decent song. Yeah, but he can't he can't hit those notes. Drop that shit a half step or more. You got no time for a second take, Jan. <laughs> Gotta get back to living on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's the real tooting back wreck. Right, so that is the actual tooting back wreck. Now, some thoughts on that. That song's way better. Vocal takes way better. The rhythmic ideas are way more interesting. That being on the album, it would have measurably changed my opinion of the album. But isn't it on the album? It is. It is on the album. I kind of like the other one. The other one's it, maybe it's just because it's catchy and has a hook. The, to me, this just felt like a six-minute punk rock song. Here's what I think about the other one. The other one, I agree. The other one was catchy, and I had to admit it was running through my head. And they even did some interesting rhythmic things. But that vocal take was so hard that it just made me cringe so much. Oh yeah, it's cr- it's definitely cringy. It's I think it's somewhat intentionally cringy. I, I would also agree that what we just listened to feels more aligned with the rest of the album. Like that other track, the, the fake track, sounds like it's a little bit out of place. No, I think that in this song, you can see a band that has advanced beyond their first album in terms of proficiency. The other song is catchy, but he doesn't know his vocal range. And in this song, he knows his vocal range. That breakdown part where he's kind of doing the sort of half talking, kind of skank whine thing he's got going on. That's his range. He knows his range now. And I think that Overall, this shows a band that has advanced. They are more proficient. Was that section the precursor to the "You're in the Jungle, You're Gonna Die"? Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Ooh. I kind of think it was. Bring it back to sleaze, yeah. Interesting. Guns and Roses absolutely were influenced by Hanoi Rocks. Axl Rose did say he made a comment that if Hanoi Rocks never existed, then Guns and Roses never would have existed. Like he he was very into this band. I could buy that. No, I was I wasn't thinking that when we were listening to it, but that makes sense. I was gonna say this sounds like if the cure were a punk band. 
in a good way. Yeah, I think The Cure is a tighter band than this, but certainly I could see that. I, I'm honestly, that part, that la 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 la, that's a cool part. It's got cool chords underneath it. Way better, in my opinion, than the fake out song that was on the album, which, again, how the fuck does that happen? And you know what? Let's just, we're going to move past it. We're going to move beyond it. Let's not move past it. Let's bring it up on every episode. Until we'll bring it up constantly. I think we should test the reach of the podcast and ask all our listeners to... No, nobody cares about Hanoi Rocks. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll promise you this. I'm going to research the email address, some kind of email address, and I'll put it in the notes of the show, and I will personally write an email if, if we think that will help to Spotify or whoever to at least... At the very least, we, they probably can't replace the song with the correct song, but they could at least gray this one out, as Spotify does right. sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why yeah. couldn't they replace the song with the correct song? Only if it exists somewhere else on Spotify. Or I guess you got to go right to the record label and be like, you have the fucking master recordings. Put the right ones Maybe up. Maybe with enough emails. I'll post the email in the notes of what you can do, dear listeners, Hanoi Rock stands. I know you're out there. I'll tell you what to do. We'll do it, too. Let's try to get something done here. Bringing good into the world. As somebody who has done this process before, it's really not that... Like, their lyrics aren't synced up for most of the songs. Correct. Like you've synced the lyrics up for our songs, which are way less popular than this shit. Well, there is a an clear answer here, Tom, which is laziness. Yes. And or maybe somebody doesn't feel like there's money in it, but listen, if Hanoi Rocks is showing up on this podcast, oh, that shit's about to blow up. Yeah. We are the forerunners of the culture, people. We all know what happened to Nana Cherry. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and Boosh. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to move on past all this wrong song bullshit. We're going to do Lick Summer Love. Okay, stop. It's the fucking wrong song again. Are you it's serious? not the right song. This is Cheyenne from their first album again. There's at least three songs that are not the right song. Were they all on the focus list? Yes. Of course. They were all on the focus wow. list. I cut one of them out because I can't do this again. But yes, this is not actually Lick Summer Love. That was Cheyenne from their first album. How did you deduce this? No, because it's funny because I didn't know that until just a second. I was going to come back and say, take back everything you said about his vocal stylings maturing. Yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he sounds terrible I was on like, this. He doesn't know his range either. That's why this album felt like I was getting whiplash. Like, that's actually pretty well produced. They seem like they've matured to what the fuck is this garbage? You know, I'm glad too because I'm looking at the description of the song on Wikipedia and uh, the content of the real lick summer love doesn't really align with the lyrics. With what we're listening. I don't want to hurt you. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't align well with a, a story of young love and young lovers. So now we are going to throw on the actual lick summer love. We're going to keep doing And we're going to get. In the room, real-time reactions again First to Lick time. Summer Love. First time that everyone here is hearing this song. Like 
live take, live reaction. What do we got for him? This has dirty laundry energy. Dude, yeah, 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 <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. I, I was going to say that this could be the song that Don Henley plays after All She Wants to Do Is Dance <laughs> in the All She Wants to Do Is Dance video. <laughs> I can think of no worse diss than this goes with All She Wants to Do Is Dance. Again, I think it's an improvement from the song I listened to this week. In terms of its goal and how it achieved that goal, I don't like this style of music at all. It's way too cheesy for me, but it does feel like a band that's more confident in what they're trying to do. Well, interestingly, this song was written by Andy McCoy when he was 17. So it is a weird combination of an old song being done by a band that now has much more experience. And so they're able to bring a lot more to the table production-wise, performance-wise, to that old song. It still has, I wrote it when I was 17, problems in the fact that it's not a sophisticated song. He also has said that it's about having oral sex with his girlfriend and he thinks it's kind of gross and slimeball, which, yeah, good on you. That's gross and slimeball. But overall, I would say that this fits with the other songs that actually belong on the album production-wise. And it is weird to be able to hear in real time the contrast between an, a band in their first studio experience and a band in their fourth studio yeah, experience. Yeah, totally. Totally hear that. There are aspects, and I, I don't know if these guys, yeah, they certainly didn't invent the some of the stuff that we heard from a production standpoint, but I kept thinking about some of like the there's a vocal line in there that's almost two octaves above the main line, like these really high backups. And again, I went back to Guns N' Roses. There are aspects of, you know, thinking of Axel singing a line and really buried in the mix is him two octaves higher screaming this line. And I kind of heard that there. So maybe I'm, I I'm poisoned myself with the with the Guns N' Roses poison. thought. Uh, I was definitely thinking, I'm glad Guns N' Roses perfected this style of music in the years to come. I'm also glad they removed this saxophone thing <laughs> that's happening here. Can you imagine Guns N' Roses? Oh my God. <laughs> Move over, Slash. Edgar Winters is going to come in. All of a sudden, Axl Rose is like, now here comes my harmonica. You're like, no, 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 no. Does not fit. Okay, that was our live reaction. To lick summer love and not Cheyenne from the first album, which my reaction to Cheyenne from the first album is like, God damn, this song sucks. Right, please tell me you're not going to do this to us again. We're going to go to the next song on the focus list. Beating gets faster. Oh no. <laughs>
I want to get my comment in before Tom tells me this. <laughs> I don't know if this is the wrong song. This is the right song. Okay. This is the real all song. Right, all the right. real song. I'll take my time then. It's a little nuanced, but there's a line in there where he says... <laughs> <laughs> nuanced take on this. I never dream of being a millionaire. Money can't buy a love affair. Actually, money can buy a love affair. Money can't buy love, though. I feel like money is the thing that most buys a love affair. Yeah, exactly. I'm a millionaire. I'm going to cheat on everybody. So that's what... So anyway, I just bothered me <laughs> i see that was the one thing i picked there's fallacies in their syllogisms yeah, <laughs> alan putting that english degree to use there wow. i like it wow. finally finally pays off this felt like the single to me maybe just how the intro is produced but then it went downhill from there like many tracks did anybody else get that piano that's guns and roses november rain all over the fucking place Ooh, yeah true. right at the yeah. top guns and roses heard this song and were like at some point, we're going to write this crazy, epic, 14-minute long song, and we're going to put that in there. <laughs> At least that's a good song, though. That's a pretty damn good song. Now that we're going through this context of like the wrong songs being in the album, it makes sense because the main note I had for this was when I got to this song in the album, the mix was so loud. like It blasted my ear. It was so uneven, but... Now that makes sense if the song that preceded it was from a different album entirely. I generally don't comment on like mixes and volume because I, I just don't have as much ear for that. But when this tune came on, it rocked my eardrum when I had headphones on. <laughs> I actually think that this is an interesting exercise in how much it makes a difference to have a good engineer, decent equipment, and a good knowledge of the studio because you get back-to-back I've never been in the studio before. This is my first album, and this is my fourth album. Songs juxtaposed like that is not that stark. Usually you buy into the premise of an album from the beginning. Oh, this is kind of lo-fi. The whole thing's lo-fi. I can buy that. Or this is well-produced. This is a professional band, a professional studio. I buy that. That's my baseline. But the baseline kept shifting in the experience that we had of listening to the wrong fucking songs for you know most of the week so it is interesting and it does go to show number one how much experience in the studio matters and number two how much the quality of the studio really does make a difference i think and i'm saying this sort of off the cuff based on what i've heard here tonight i think this song throws back to their earlier material a little it has a little more of the earlier songwriting style it's executed a little better but it's less punchy it's like they have more decay on their instruments in general they're letting it jangle or they're really tight less decay on the newer stuff (laughs) it is hard to be really tight on hits that that kind of stuff, you have to workshop that. That intro section reminded me of the Iron Maiden record we listened to a bit. Kind of had some yes. of that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I think it's metal. It's definitely metal. And it's definitely hair metal. Because, again, you can smell the hairspray. Oh, you thought that was tracks. more hair metal? That one felt a little more like Curie to me. But, like, you know, you're going oh, somewhere Oh, yeah, because the Curie that. didn't have crazy hair or anything like that. <laughs> well, you can't hear the size of the hair, guys. though. You, you know? can kind of hear the size of the hair, I got to say. You can kind of hear it on the tracks. So I thought the guitar chop at the one-minute mark was a cool kind of flavor change in there that, that kept it interesting. And there's a drone piano at around the 150 mark 
that again just gave me something to listen to kind of kept me interested The things you're talking about require time in the studio to work out. You could have worked it out beforehand, but this is also the kind of thing that you get in the studio when you record the song. You're like, it needs something else. It needs something, right. I'm going to go back and do a little guitar chop here. How's that sound? Then you re-record it, you know. You're not rushing your first album because you're like, hey, I have to get back to begging for change on the streets. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to miss Rush Hour. (laughs) All right, we are going to go on to the last song on our focus list, Ice Cream Summer. Again, America Coca-Cola, number one. favorite song on the album personally i have to agree and it yet it's only the second best song that contains the line rosalita between the rosalita and the cheesy sax like I, i'm sure they know who springsteen is at this point but, I mean, <laughs> yeah. what is that should just called rosalita bitch on that song and that would have been that would have been stone cold killer that's the one part that's kind of turned me off because the rest of it's kind of a wholesome 1950s vibe right yeah right yeah it gives me like a bit of a ramones thing the way that sort of like 50s punk you know meets punk meets like just a tinge of surf sure yeah i, I thought this song was cool i thought it had some decent hooks the, the sax killed me the the bitch at 25 seconds. I lost my shit for like a minute when I listened to that <laughs> and had a hard time focusing on the next like minute of the song. I laughed out loud at now I'm all alone in the heartbreak zone. I don't know. why. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to make a finish record. Challenge accepted. How do you call a girl a worthless slag and finish? <laughs> we'll be able to make our Hanoi Rocks album. When they bring the bells and the piano arpeggio and it was just like I felt like they were just throwing the kitchen sink at it to try to make it interesting anytime that you throw bells into a rock song I feel like you're like scraping the bottom of the barrel like well I don't have a solo I don't have any more chords you know what throw some bells in there Bob you got it I just like the I keep living on you're in the past it's been so long since the ice cream summer what the fuck is he talking about with that if nothing else this gives me some confidence to start writing some songs (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we all know of course that rosalita the second most popular female finish name of oh, course right. yes. <laughs> rosalita is just yeah you can't walk around the streets of helsinki without tripping over three rosalitas of course <laughs> but you know overall i found this to be a pretty decent song i was pretty happy with it but the question remains 
has what we listened to this evening, not this week, just this evening, when we heard the real songs on this album, elevated this to something you must hear before you die. I'm going to throw it over first to Rob. What's your vote? You know, I wavered a little bit with tonight's new revelations. However, for me, it's still a no. I think it was a fun record. Certainly not sorry I listened to it and got this information. And if you're a anthologist of sleaze rock, by all means. (laughs) However, for all others, I think you can safely avoid this one. All righty. What do you got, Adam? I'm falling in a similar boat as Rob. I was going to try to be a contrarian and come up with a reason why you did need to listen to this, but I'm scraping here and I, I can't think of a solid reason that you need to hear this before you die. So it's going to be a no for me. All righty, Alan, what do you got for me? It's going to be a no for me as well. I often over-index on bands that have had influence and impact and all these hair metal bands, glam metal bands, love Hanoi Rocks, and on influence alone, you can make a case that you should listen to it, but I honestly, I don't get it. I don't see anything that's like super new or that, I mean, I guess it's kind of different in some ways because it's so weird, but I I do not think that that this is a must listen. All righty. Phil? If you're a Guns N' Roses enthusiast, this is a must listen. If you have a fetish for the type of rock music that is played in a Martian scenario on Total Recall. Um, (laughs) Or as we stated earlier, if you want to see more of the video footage uh, of Don Henley, all she wants to do is dance. uh, You know, maybe this is for you, but this is, this is an easy pass for me. This is an easy now. I see no redeeming value. Boosh. The mail's coming. Actually, that's not true. I just said the redeeming value. If you're a major guns and races, that's the redeeming value. Or total recall. Or total total recall. recall. (laughs) (laughs) If you're a three-breasted woman living on Mars. (laughs) Well, as a huge Total Recall fan, I'm still going to pass on this, and I feel kind of bad. I watched a long interview. It was like an hour and a half long documentary, which was just interviews with Michael Monroe interspliced with them playing live, which by the way, the favorite part of that interview was it's Michael Monroe sitting there talking. And then after like 10 minutes, this camera slowly pans out and he's wearing a shirt that just says Michael Monroe and has his face on it, (laughs) which is fantastic. All right. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty fantastic. I'm still going to give this a no. And the tragedy of this band does not sway me. I'm like Rob. Screw Amy Winehouse. I don't care if he died. That was, I believe, your vote. We're going to, you know, we'll look, look back at the sacred scrolls. Hold on a I second. believe you had something that was pretty similar to I don't care if you died tragically. It doesn't that, make your That's an exact good. quote. I tattooed it on my body as soon as you said it. I scheduled, I scheduled the, the session that night. Because the one thing that is kind of sad is that these guys were gaining a following. They were getting pretty big. And then when... Razzle was killed in a car accident in 1984. Within a year, the band completely fell apart and broke up. And Michael Monroe was talking in these documentaries, and I'm pretty sure that it was before Razzle died where he even said, hey, if somebody leaves this band, like, we've gone through so much shit together, we're kind of like a family. If somebody left this band or if somebody died, like, I just don't think it could be the same. And then Razzle dies, and the band completely falls apart. Chip Casino wasn't available to Chip pick Casino. Up the he was probably still depressed and creating. I'm sure, like you know, finished black metal. That's where they came from. <laughs> you get thrown out for being too depressed. 
But no, we're 0 for 5. I'm sorry, Hanoi Rocks. You're not on the list. And all of you Hanoi Rock stands out there, feel free to write us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We would love to hear why we're wrong, why we got the research wrong. I feel like I watched a whole bunch of footage and watched a whole bunch of interviews from these guys, but I could be completely wrong on some of my research. Again, we only had a week, and if you've been loving this band since 1983, good on you. Tell us what we missed. And in that vein, I am now going to throw it over to Rob, who's going to reach his bedazzled and multi-ring-having hand into that mailbag and pull out some listener mail. Thank you, Thomas. And just want to say before we close this out, it's lovely seeing all you guys. We've been yeah, spending quite a bit of yeah. time together over the last couple of weeks. Unusual, I'd say, for us. So it's been great. Yeah, the Delaware diaspora has officially <laughs> come back home to roost for a short period of time before we all get sick of this place and get the fuck out of here again. Hey, well, some of us still have to live here. <laughs> You're still sick of it, though. You know that. <laughs> okay, but let's talk mailbag. We have two dispatches from our fans. One is from Bradley from Miami. He writes on referring to the Juju episode. Just a really brief note about the definitely unquestionable front loading of the Sushi Sue and the Banshees Juju record. Bear in mind that we were all listening on cassettes at that time. I've never really thought about it, but if you're a newbie freaky band like the Banshees, front loading might make total sense. The kid will pop in the tape and the only way side two is getting hit is if side one's pretty badass. What do you guys think about front-loading records? I mean, it's an obvious like tactic. I think if you don't have confidence in the full material, I would do that. Like I understand why bands do that's, it. That's what I want to say, too. I think not doing it projects confidence, and I do think it's kind of outside the spirit of album making, but I see what you're saying. I feel like the best albums have tracks one through three as absolute killers, and then track seven is a killer... And then the last track is the sleeper that the band likes the most, but everybody probably is. It's not for public consumption. I'll tell you what front loading is better than, which we, I feel like, and I'm not calling to mind any specific examples, but on this podcast, we've mentioned many where the biggest hits like buried is track eight. And you're like, what were you guys thinking? Yeah. It's like the second or third song on side two. It's right. Like, well, that just shows that they didn't know what their hit was. Yeah. For sure. Those bands, if they know what their hit was, it's one, two or three on the album. Yeah, I agree. I guess it's just uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Okay, that is good insight, though. Good, good insight, Bradley from Miami. We appreciate you writing in. And now another one that I think is going to spur some discussion. Dan from Brooklyn writes, "Hey gang, love the podcast and listen almost weekly." I see what you're doing there, Dan. We get it. I mean, I don't even listen weekly. So. <laughs> uh, he says, "My entry to the show is when I search for any podcast that talks about Fleetwood Mac's Tusk, and lo and behold, sixty plus episodes later, I look forward to seeing what the Albinator will pull up for your next assignment." With that, I've been wondering two things about how you might approach certain albums based on the following two considerations: one. When assigned one of Dimery's choices by a band whose material is a shoe-in to be a predictable yes, at least in my opinion, such as the Beatles, Bowie, or Talking Heads, some of which you've already tackled, does it make it easier or harder knowing that you might be dissecting a sacred cow? Or do some of you feel you already know your vote ahead of time and feel it's an exercise in wankishness? You know what? I'm going to take the first part of this answer. Everything we're doing here... Dan from Brooklyn is an exercise in wankishness. <laughs> yes, I mean, <laughs> well, what do you think about sacred cows, Adam? I feel like I am the 
the personality here who is not familiar with a lot of these albums, right? Like I feel like you guys definitely know a lot more of the deeper cuts. But having said that, I'm actually going to address the wankishness thing, is that I'm genuinely influenced by the story and the opinions given by this crew. And those definitely on a weekly basis influence my vote. So I'll say something. I think we have talked about it. Maybe it's been a while. But we feel like a lot of the stuff, the Beatles catalog, a lot of the true classics have been talked and praised to death in other places on the internet. I feel we've talked about that offline with each other. And so we definitely don't have a problem, I think, dissecting sacred cows, right? That's sort of the premise of the show is, and by the way, even those classics have things to make fun of and laugh about. Sure, but it's a lot harder. Like, you do a Nana Cherry or a Kid Rock episode, it's like playing basketball on a seven-foot rim. You're just fucking dunking <laughs> left and right on these people. You want me to dunk on fucking Paul McCartney? It's a lot harder to get a good rip in there on a Stone Cold classic. And just to give you some intel, since you mentioned those three artists, I looked back at the Sacred Scrolls, and when we covered Bowie, the only time we've covered Bowie on the podcast so far, because he has several records on the list, we covered Station to Station, and every single person voted no. So just putting that out there, that there's no artist that gets an automatic pass, right? In fact, even the Beatles' Let It Be, not technically on Robert Dimery's list, was voted no by two people around this table right now. Did I vote no on Let It Be? No, you didn't, Phil. You you went away unscathed on that one. It was Adam. (laughs) Big surprise. (laughs) Big surprise was Adam. Okay, next question from Dan from Brooklyn. When an album is up for review by one of these bands who are already established on multiple best albums of all time list, do you take into consideration the context of that album within the artist's canon, whether or not it's need to listen before you die? Million percent. Absolutely. To be frank, you don't need to hear every Led Zeppelin album before you die. You might need to hear every Beatles album before you die, but you probably don't need to hear every Pink Floyd album before you die. Just because it's on the list doesn't mean that it's a must here. You can get everything you need to get out of that artist's catalog with their seminal works. And we always like to get stuff that's on an upswing that leads to something and not the victory lap end of career album that we're sort of like, ah, you know, you didn't have a whole lot more to give and maybe it's a decent album, but it didn't point in a good direction. You already did that thing better previously. Well, again, I'll reference the two I just referenced, the Bowie Station to Station, which I think we all agreed we liked quite a bit, or generally liked, even though we poked fun at it, but we all said no. And Beatles Let It Be, similarly, although one could argue every Beatles record is a must-listen. And last one I'll mention is, we just did this one recently, is the Talking Heads debut record, which I think we sat around the room and everyone, without exception, said it was not their favorite Talking Heads record, that it was like their third or fourth favorite Talking Heads record. And yet, because it was the first debut, and it confidently announced the band and their intentions, we unanimously voted it on. Yeah, I, I try to look, look at this stuff through the lens of, if I were creating like a curriculum of music, or if someone said, hey, design me a list of things I should listen to, or something that covers important periods of time, or something that has some relevance, to me, I look for those things in the context. Great questions, Dan from Brooklyn. Really appreciate you asking us to dive into our process. We, of course, think a lot about it here at the podcast. And if you're out there and you have a great question for us, you'd like to hear our wankish thoughts upon it, all you got to do is send a dispatch over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. All righty. Thank you, Rob. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. And thank you to everyone who has been listening to our podcast. Today, 
in the past. Whenever you happen to listen to it, if you're hearing this right now, you stuck out to the bitter, bitter end of this podcast, and we really appreciate it. We do this for fun. We have a great time doing it. We hope you have a great time listening. Let's talk about next week. What are we going to be diving into? I have the Albinator here. It has on like a ripped leather jacket and like a slinky kind of t-shirt. It has herpes, I'm sure. And it's got a lot of product on. Yeah. It's got eyeliner on and it really works. It works in kind of a weird way. And I'm somewhat attracted to it right now. It's very odd. So we're going to go ahead and spin that old wheel and see what we're going to be listening to next week. Without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is Make Yourself by the band Incubus. I know maybe two Incubus songs. Is this early Incubus? I don't fucking know, man. I'm actually not available next week, by the way. <laughs> just, just a, there, there was a question earlier. <laughs> you a Brandon Boyd hater? I'm, I'll be wa- washing my hair. I actually don't know anything about this band. All that I know about Incubus is that they have kind of heavier songs, but they do really interesting harmony. That's the one thing that's always jumped out to me listening to Incubus songs is that they have pretty decent sense of weird harmony and i like weird harmony their guitar player was always a little outside the box as well like he wasn't just playing straight ahead pentatonic stuff and and odd rhythm patterns and stuff so yeah i enjoy incubus you guys are making me excited to get into it nice yeah awesome awesome very excited to get into that next week unfortunately we will have been scattered to the wind and will not be sitting around one table drinking copious amounts of beer and Phil's brain tonic that he's got going on over here. But until next time, thank you for listening. For 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Tom. I'm Rob. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boosh. Boo!